Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. Good afternoon, folks. Hello. Uh, we still have some folks coming in, but I'll uh, I'll start because I don't want to uh, steal time from uh, Professor Hurd. Uh, welcome to SNED, Studies in National and International Development. Uh, on behalf of co-chairs, myself, Aicha Tomac, and Carolyn Prouse, I welcome you to the longest-running interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNED has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Uh, we have two other uh, sessions lined up for this term, and I will share them in the chat uh, momentarily. Uh, but I would like to invite you all to next week's session uh, right now, as we will continue talking about waste with an amazing panel uh, with Jose Wetmer, Rafi Arafin, and Kesha Fabria. SNED is hosted by Queen's University, which sits on the traditional territories of the, of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabeg Nation and continues to benefit from ongoing colonization in the forms of extractions of resources, knowledges, and practices of indigenous peoples, not only in Kataraki, but around the Turtle Island. On behalf of SNED hosts who are settlers on this land, I would like to reiterate that SNED is committed to amplify the voices of scholars, activists, and artists who study, work, and create towards dismantling white supremacy and settler colonialism. Today, we are really happy to welcome Dr. Myra Hurt Sned. Dr. Hurt is Professor, Queen's National Scholar, and Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada in the School of Environmental Studies at Queen's. Dr. Hurt is Director of Waste Flow, an interdisciplinary research project focused on waste as a global, scientific, technical, and socio-ethical issue. And uh, you can find more information at uh, wasteflow.ca. She has published 11 books and over 80 articles and book chapters on a diversity of topics relating to science studies, including uh, Canada, uh, Canada's Waste Flows, uh, which was published by McGill Queens in 2021, and A Public Sociology of Waste, which was published by Bristol University Press in 2022. She's currently writing Extracting Reconciliation in Human Wastes, Indigenous Lands, and Colonial Reckoning with uh, Hilary Pratko for Rutledge Press. Welcome, Professor Hurd. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to just uh, share my screen. Uh, hang on. I've. Okay, hang on. Let's see. <laughs> It, honestly, it seems to be that no matter how long we're in this pandemic, I still can't manage to do the easiest of things like share my screen. <laughs> so bear with me, everyone. Okay, and let me do, uh, hang on, let me do slideshow. Play from the start. Okay, thank you very much for that uh, for that introduction. I really appreciate it, and I'm uh, very 
very happy and honored to be here. Um, so uh, the, I've entitled this presentation, Canada's Waste Flows, A Tale of Two Problems. And uh, I just want to start by, uh, by acknowledging that I am a settler Canadian who benefits from ongoing settler colonialism. Queen's University, where we all work, is situated, as we know, on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. And I'm grateful to be able to listen and learn on these lands. I accept my responsibility to act according to the truth and reconciliation calls to action. And I'm actually, um, maybe this is something that we can return to um, in the in the question and answer or um, what, what it means to take responsibility to act. Um, Okay, so let's let's get going. So the story of waste in Canada goes something like this. We produce too much waste. It's a crisis. We need to take responsibility for our waste. We need to educate people so that they will take responsibility for their waste. <laughs> I hear this a lot. A lot of people are still not recycling their waste. We can do better. If only people cared more about the planet, we could solve our garbage problem. I want to question each of these heartfelt um, claims in this presentation. So I want to give an example. This is, I, I'm not trying to pick on these authors um, at all. I, it's, it's, one of, it's one of many examples that, uh, we could uh, we see in the literature, and I want to. Uh, it, it really embodies um, the way um, so so many of us uh, Canadians and globally understand what the problem is, and therefore what the solutions need to be. So this comes from uh, an article that was uh, just published in 2021 called "Solid Waste Management in the Arctic." Um, by a, a host of, of scholars. And this, I've just taken um, these, uh, these parts of the abstract because they really, really illustrate what, I'm, what I want to call into question, what I want to, to discuss today. So from the, from the abstract, it says, Arctic cities face unique challenging, challenges in managing their solid waste due to their relative small size, remote location, extreme and rapidly changing climate, and boom-bust economies. Generally, Arctic residents produce more waste annually while seeing lower rates of collection and recycling relatively little compared to other cities. To improve on existing conditions, Arctic cities should prioritize implementing methods to reduce waste production and increase recycling. In other words, the what what um, a, a lot of researchers who go into uh, Canada's Arctic, um, and I and I'm I'm really excited to to join SNID's uh, 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 talk next week because this is this is a lot about um, uh, how how the globalized north talks about the globalized south. Of course, we have our own globalized south in the in the Arctic. Um, in, in indigenous communities, not just in the Arctic, but across Canada, uh, that are f facing, among many other issues, um, waste crises. And the idea is that these communities need to modernize their waste management. They need to become more like communities in the south of Canada. And, and that this is the solution to waste issues in, um, 
in Canada's Arctic. So if only, you know, if only Inuit, for instance, in, 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 uh, in Nunavut would modernize, they would be able to solve their own waste crisis. They could take responsibility for their, their own waste production and come up with, you know, management solutions. I want to challenge this widely held assumption. And I want to, I'm going to challenge it on two bases. The first one is that waste in Canada, all my research is about trying to demonstrate how waste in Canada, as in the rest of the world, it's not a techno, it's not a techno problem and a behavioral problem. It's a social justice problem. We're trying to fix our waste crisis, not just in Canada, but globally through a number of techno fixes, waste to energy facilities, um, uh, you know, nuclear repositories that have ski slopes built on them or cafes as in Copenhagen and individual behavioral change. If we all just pitched in and cared for the environment and and washed out our peanut butter jars better we would increase our recycling and we could resolve our waste crisis what communities in where I, you know where i'm most familiar nunavut where they are uh, where they are constantly being told to modernize i.e to be more like what the situation is in southern communities like kingston for instance the way waste is managed in southern communities also reinforces these the sort of this techno fix plus individual behavioral change so the second prong of my argument is that the way that waste is governed in southern communities in Canada is really around settler colonial neoliberal capitalist priorities. And this is what the Canadian government and our municipal and provincial governments call waste management. This style of governance is what I call in my research the problem of amplification, and I'm going to I'm going to explain it. Okay, so let's look at the social justice problem. This is a this is an old map of uh, Halloween for any of you who have been fortunate and privileged enough to to travel north. Um, and uh, what you see in the little dots there, the little black dots, these are waste. These are open dumps um, in Halloween and as as you'll know if you if if you've uh, been fortunate enough to go up there there are no engineered landfills in Nunavut there are no uh, energy uh, um, energy from waste facilities there are no functioning um, uh, incinerators etc and there is no recycling Nunavut communities in Nunavut face massive critical issues one of which is waste and the reason uh, you know what what this means is uh, they live near open dumps that have a heterogeneous collection of all kinds of things um, and uh, when the dumps catch on fire or they are uh, set on fire to reduce their their volume the the, the smoke can uh, can tran uh, can transmit across the communities and can have uh, he uh, health uh, effects for for uh, people living in these communities we need to remember that that these dump sites were are the creation of 
ongoing settler colonialism. So I don't have time to go into this here, but if you, if you read anything about the history of, of Nunavut, we see that it's really settler uh, colonists who, um, who created the conditions for which uh, we get this waste, our current uh, waste crisis. So, and this includes things like, um, you know, the members of the RCMP, the Hudson's Bay Company, other traders, missionaries, etc. Sort of forcing communities, forcing Inuit uh, uh, families together into communities, um, sometimes violently uh, doing this, dispossessing people of their lands, forcing them into settlements for the purpose of low wage labor um, and sovereignty issues that if you're interested, I can talk a bit about later. So Inuit in Inuit and Nunavut goes from a from a almost no waste situation to an abundance of waste. Um, and it and it all is it, it, it's all directly tracked back to settler colonialism. A lot of the dumps in fact in Nunavut are were cited and developed um, um, as for resource extraction and for the Canadian and American militaries. And if and the map, uh, the Halloween map, a lot of those dumps actually contain a lot of Canadian and American military waste um, as they do uh, resource extraction. And littered across um, across uh, Nunavut is um, are are these are these sort of dump sites that have been cre created either through resource extraction, mining industries, or um, or the militaries. So I this is a picture that I took a long time ago of uh, you know, you might recognize that this is one of the dew line uh, radar stations that that um, you know crisscross not just across Canada's Arctic but but uh, Greenland etc. Um, and uh, they uh, are the site of major major um, um, toxic uh, pollution etc. This is the one in Halloween. Um but uh, they they're they're sort of dotted all across the 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 north so it, this is just one example of of military waste and its its legacies uh uh in in northern canada and um what i want to say here is one of the chapters in the canada's waste flows book um really comes out of research that i did with uh one of my great graduate students alex zahara um who studied um the um the dump fires in 2014 in Hallowit. it's important to say that the west 40 dump which is in the background of the picture of julie here um it catches on fire routinely and um uh, I, I can't, I'm not going to go into it here, but suffice it to say that, um, you know, Inuit residents of Halloween are very clear that um, the, the, those dump fires, et cetera, are a product of settler colonialism. Here we have Julie, and I have her permission to, um, to uh, use this picture uh, she's got in, in, uh, in Inuktitut there, um, stop, tema, which means enough. And um, part of the research I've, I've, I've done is to look at um, the ways in which um, ongoing settler colonialism has created these crises for which then uh, Inuit communities are held responsible and, and criticized for, um, for uh, the ways in which they don't meet the standards of uh, Southern Canadian uh, communities. So that in a nutshell is problem one. We're, we're, we're using the wrong frame. So let's look at 
let's look at the let's look more intensely at the frame that we do use in, in the, the this 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 way that we are governing waste in southern communities which which you know uh, indigenous communities really across Canada not just in the Arctic but really across Canada are are held up to as um, a standard that they are not meeting let's look at what's going on in southern communities like Kingston. And this is what I call the problem of amplification. So the problem of amplification happens when the causes and or solutions of a particular pro problem are disproportionately framed, such that certain groups or interest groups are given either too much or too little responsibility for a problem and its solution. So um, the problem of amplification is a really long-standing uh, problem. And I give some examples here. Um, so the first one here is the American Can Company and other companies uh, in the States, which traveled to uh, Canada and around the world, um, created this, you know, Keep America Beautiful campaign when they were trying to deflect attention away from the fact that they wanted to move from glass bottles for their for coca-cola for pepsi etc and they wanted to move to plastics because plastics would increase their product profits because um, they didn't have to they didn't have to reuse the the the, the glass bottles plastic bottles are lighter and so they're they're cheaper to transport etc so there was a lot of resistance um, especially in uh, states like Vermont to this move to plastic uh, bottles and so um, the uh, these companies got together and they they created this keep America beautiful and if you're old <laughs> if you're old enough like I am you might remember this campaign that was on television you can find it on YouTube it's really easy to find it on YouTube there's it's a all it's a series of them that featured this man called Iron Eyes Cody who um, who is supposed to be this American Indian who you see paddling his canoe his birch bark canoe up some river and he, there he is and and he um, he he pulls this canoe ashore and he's dressed in something out of you know dances with wolves and a white woman drives by on a highway and she throws her mcdonald's or whatever wrappers out of the out of her car window and they land on iron eyes cody's feet and a single tear trickles down his cheek as he says people start pollution, people can stop it. This is a perfect example of what we live with right now, <laughs> which is this problem of amplification where individuals and families and households are held far uh, disproportionately responsible for our waste crisis. We can also think about, for instance, the Container Corporation of America that created the recycling that green logo that we are so used to seeing for instance on our recycling bins and all across the queen's campus was created for the second earth day um, by the container corporation of america it's another good example of deflection and it it it, it uh, foreshadows what i'm about to talk about next Re more recently the this idea of of being able to track our and, and estimate our own carbon footprints, that was a creation of BP oil. 
So the individual carbon footprint calculator, you know how you can like calculate your footprint because you want to you know, you want to take a vacation and, but you feel guilty about it. And so you get on one of these many sites and then you can pay a bunch of money. So some trees somewhere are, are planted or something like that. That's a creation of BP oil. And that was that it, BP oil created it as once again, a, 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 a way of pivoting the public's attention away from the, the real sources of uh, waste and pollution. So here are a few uh, perhaps inconvenient truths about uh, waste. Far more waste is produced in the extraction, production, and manufacturing and retail uh, pro uh, processes of any given product than they are post-consumption. So most of the difference between manufacturing a product and the product itself goes to waste. The golden rule is that for every ton of waste produced by consumers, which is post-consumption waste, 20 tons of waste is produced in the extraction process alone. In the European Union, only 8% of the 2.5 billion tons of waste produced in 2014, for which I have the, um, that's the last I have of that kind of reporting, was household waste. 92% of the waste was generated by the extractive and manufacturing industries. And if you think that's bad, I've done a bit of a, a, of a sort of a chalkboard calculation of Canada's waste production. And um, my, you know, back of the envelope uh, calculation is that Canadian individuals' households are producing no more than 1.3% of the waste that Canada produces. A large open cast mine can produce up to 40 times more waste than any Latin America megacity produces in a year. Think about this. 2.1 tons of materials are needed to manufacture a 79 kilogram washing machine. This is in France, sorry. I get my research from all over the place, uh, which is 27 times its weight. And an 11 kilogram television materials for 227 times the television's weight. So these are just some little snippets to give you a little bit of a flavor of the massive, massive amplification of of the waste that households are producing compared to what the extractive industry and manufacturing industries are producing. So this comes from Statistics Canada. This is, uh, I, I like it because it just makes it, it's visually uh, very clear. So this is um, back from the last time the Canadian federal government produced statistics in this way. Now they, it's harder to find <laughs> this, this data. You have to put other things together. But so if you look at this, the, the tiny little bar on the right, that is municipal solid waste. So that's the waste that members of the public are familiar with. That's the waste that we touch every day. By far, more waste is produced by the oil sands, by mining, by uh, mine waste rock, and by ag the agricultural uh, sectors. This doesn't include, by the way, ICI waste. So this does not include uh, construction waste. Um, and it does not include, and this is highly significant, military waste. Military waste is not reported in the same way that 
um, companies or institutions like Queens have to report waste. So they'll so the RMC will will report waste in, as an institution in the way that Queens reports the waste produced, but they're not they they're not they the military does not report the waste uh, waste that is uh, produced through, for instance. Uh, uh, military actions in other countries, nor uh, any kind of testing, etc. We tend we get that information uh, much later, so we know about all of that that toxic uh, mustard gas that was dumped um, um, off the east coast of Canada uh, and dumped in the Great Lakes, and 30, 40 years later from the from the factory that created this in uh, Cornwall. So. Um, all right, so most Canadian waste is not municipal solid waste. And most of, the, most of our household waste, most of the waste that is being produced post-consumption is actually waste that's being externalized from manufacturers because most of it is actually packaging. So, and as soon as, as, soon as we buy something, we take on the cost of uh, dealing with that packaging, which is not something that we, we, we want to buy. It just comes with the product, yeah? So, so why do we have this problem of amplification? Well, we have it by design. It's not just how this happened to develop. It's actually, it's really by design. It's by design that our, our current waste management system places responsibility onto individuals. And in households, especially heterosexual households, this is typically women. Women are still doing the bulk of uh, sorting and recycling within, within households. Um, so it places responsibility onto um, households onto consumers and defines members of the public largely as consumers. And this is largely accomplished through recycling. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to talk about recycling uh, in, in my next slide. But why does this happen? Well, it increases waste uh, industry profits. And let's let's remember that a lot of, uh, you know, recycling companies are actually owned by much larger uh, waste uh, management companies. So it increases waste industry profits because we're paying for waste, uh, our, our waste disposal, and we're paying for recycling. And it doesn't decrease uh, consumption or confront production at all. So it does not in any way deter or call into question our, you know, capitalist growth economy. That is never touched in this. The solution, the problem is individuals are creating waste and the solution is we need to recycle better. And if we keep that amplification going, we never have to look at the upstream issues of how our society is organized such that extractive manufacturing and retail uh, you know, production is disguised or minimized or invisible. So let's talk about the issues with recycling. And I'm probably going to go through this rather quickly. And if you have any, if you have any questions, I'm happy to go back to any of these slides. Um, uh, but, you know, just so I'm just so what's wrong with recycling? Um, so there are a number of tricks to recycling. Um, 
and I'm going to mention a few of them here, and I can go into details. If I go through anything too fast or too in too cursory a fashion, call me on it and I can give more details. Okay, so there's a few tricks. The first trick is that recycling is actually disposal. It's just called something different. So in Canada, as in, a, in, in, uh, in most countries around the world now, um, recycling is a for-profit industry, as is waste management. It's not... Um, uh, I have one uh, fantastic student, uh, Gabrielle D, who's looking at the possibility of remunicipalizing waste. Um, as David McDonald has looked at, um, you know, remunicipalizing uh, water. Um, so it means that, you know, things are only recycled if the company that the municipality has, um, has contracted with uh, can make a profit from it. If not, it's just simply diverted back into the waste stream. And, and a lot of our recycling, that's exactly what happens, particularly plastics. Um, so um, whether when we put things in a recycling bin, no matter how well we've washed it or how super careful we are and we look up where we put everything, that doesn't mean it's actually being recycled. It just means that people think it's being recycled or maybe people hope that it's being uh, recycled. Um, okay, here's another, here's another issue. Okay, recycling does not, um, it, it's not reducing um, extraction and it's not reducing demand at all. This is a, this is a, a, uh, a graph that I like to that I like to use because I think it, it makes it very clear. This is about uh, electronics. So if you look at the green part of the graph, this is the theoretical recycling potential. If we were to take all of our electronics and recycle them, and that includes what's known as hibernating stock. So you know all those electronics that we have in our homes and we haven't put them in the garbage because it makes us feel guilty, but we don't really know where to take them. So they just sort of sit in drawers. I don't know if you have those, I certainly do. Because um, everything magically goes obsolete and you have to keep buying more and more and more, right? And so these are known as hibernating stock. So let's just say that we could magically sort of take everyone's hibernating stocks and combine those with all of electronics and we recycled all of those. That's the theoretical recycling potential. That's why it's called theoretical because it's an estimate, right? The taupe part of the graph, the light brown part of the graph, this is um, the, this is the uh, requirements for resource extraction with our current demand for electronics globally. So you can see that there's no chance that recycling all the electronics we've already produced will be sufficient to meet our current demand. And if you see, and you see the angle of the graph, our demand for electronics is increasing and increasing and increasing, right? So um, recycling is not going to decrease extraction. And there's no evidence that this is happening for, um, if you're interested, I can talk to you about plastics, for instance. Um, all right. So um, another, another, another issue is that recycling, it, it really depends on what, what product, you're, what material you're talking about as to whether it is environmentally a good thing to recycle it or whether it's better to dispose of it. So a couple of, one of the big factors in this, for instance, is the transportation. Whereas, um, so right now, for instance, Kingston is 
uh, has no open landfill. So 100% of Kingston's waste, all the waste that people produce in Kingston, whether it's a Queens or from our, our homes, is all being transported to two um, landfills that are in Ontario. Reprocessing facilities for uh, recycling are often way further afield. And I take, I give this example of um, polystyrene. So um, up until up until recently, Kingston had a, a contract to uh, recycle polystyrene. This is what this means. This means that CARC, the Kingston Area Recycling Center, takes polystyrene that people diligently put in their recycling boxes and they store it until they have enough of a volume. Then trucks using non-renewable where they they reprocess the polystyrene, which means that using chemical processes, which creates toxic waste that has to be landfilled and specially designed hazardous landfills, um, is uh, it's sort of liquefied to make it a smaller volume so that they can get uh, more of it, which they put on trucks using non-renewable fossil fuels, drive it to Montreal, where it's put on container ships, where it's then shipped using non-renewable fossil fuels, to uh, to the USA and South Korea, where it is uh, facilities that use chemical processes, which is creating toxic sludge waste, um, is then made into you know products like you know picture frames that we would buy at Dollarama, and uh, then shipped back to us using non-renewable fossil fuels. Um, so there's, that's a lot of transportation. So the carbon footprint of recycling polystyrene, just as one example, is far worse than, than landfilling that polystyrene. The last time I was at CARP, which was just before the pandemic hit, they told me that they now had a contract with Indianapolis. That's over a thousand kilometers using non-renewable fossil fuels. So. Another example of this, um, and I can give you the reference if you're interested, you, you might have noticed that the Canadian government with big fanfare has introduced, the, the, they, uh, it's been put on hold, but they promised it's happening this year. They're going to ban single-use plastics, uh, mostly referring to food service wear. Well, if you look at the life cycle analysis of um, recycling uh, things like f plastic food service wear. You can't see this graph very well, but actually um, the devil is in the details. And there's actually a, 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 an environmental negative effect for things like human toxicity, global warming, fossil energy, ecotoxicity, smog acidification, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, by, from recycling. So, um, <laughs> So as I mentioned, recycling creates hazardous waste. Paper is a really good example of this. You know, the, you know when we're all diligently putting all that paper in recycling? Well, when you recycle paper, it uses toxic chemicals to remove the ink and then re-dye re the paper. And this creates this toxic sludge, which is really difficult to dispose of, and it's landfilled. Um, it, uh, it, requires petroleum products, it's all this stuff. And the and each time we recycle waste, uh, 
paper, it gives us a much less quality paper, such that you're only you're only able to recycle. And this is sort of largely true of everything that we recycle. It it, ha it the product is of a decreased quality. So we don't infinitely recycle things like the like um, the American Can Company wanted us to believe in that in that logo that it just goes round and round and it's some sort of circular economy. Recycling. Um, is a very, very poor way of trying to build a circular economy materially. Um, this was put together, this graph was put together by uh, one of my wonderful uh, former PhD students, Dr. Scott Lowheed, and he, this is all the communities in um, Ontario that have um, that have uh, waste diversion programs, which means recycling. And uh, what you see here is that there's a positive correlation between communities that have, um, have uh, recycling programs and consumption. So, you know, we don't have causal evidence, but there's certainly strong correlational evidence, not just using Ontario, but around the world, that when, when there is recycling in place, people consume more because they think that it's more licensed morally to consume, yeah. Um, and if you look here, you know, I mean, I I'm <laughs> I do a whole project on plastics, so if you're interested, we can talk more about this. But just to say that, um, let's just remember, you know, in Canada, the De Deloitte um, report, you know, revealed to us um, that only nine percent of plastics are are being recycled in Canada, uh, which sort of matches the rest of the world. And and part of the reason for this is a lot of you know. A lot of plastics cannot be recycled, but let's also remember when plastics are being recycled, they they require virgin resin. So if you want to increase plastics recycling, you're, you're going to increase oil and gas production. So this is why the universe. Uh, this is why Alberta, for instance, I speculate, is massively. We are going to be the recycling plastics hub of North America. And it's because, and this is, I speculate why Canada and the US has recently signed this bilateral agreement um, on, on recycling and waste exports to between our countries. Um, it's because they're eyeing, this is a, this is a sort of a green, greening way <laughs> to present um, oil and gas extraction as, as, a, as a good thing because um, it, it will be used uh, for recycling. Um, so, you know, in sum, you know, recycling doesn't divert <laughs> things in an environmentally good way. Recycling itself is the diversion. And so, you know, I thank a bunch of my undergrad students who put me onto this graphic novel here as the world burns, 50 simple things you can do to stay in denial, you know, and there they are recycling on the front cover. And, you know, and, and let's just remember that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a pretty good trick, right? Like we, we pay as, as, as individuals and households through taxation through for waste disposal. And then we also pay for recycling. And let's remember that these recycling companies don't share any of that profit. We give them, we, we don't just give them stuff and then they make a profit by recycling it. We pay for them to take our recycling, make a profit and share none of those profits with us. So, I mean, it's, it's a capitalist, like it's super good. 
from that perspective. It's not good from an environment perspective. And it's not good from a citizenship perspective or any kind of public good, but it's super popular. So, you know, the, this is a this is a picture at the bottom of, you know, super keen university students who are, you know, demonstrating how how much they care for the environment. Let's remember that that recycling is one of the, if not the main way that 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 individuals um, demonstrate their concern for the environment. So um, I, I, I really like this quote from, from, I'm just wrapping up, but I really like this quote from Paul Wabner, and I, I hope you don't mind that I'm going to read it. For me, um, all of this, this problem for, of amplification is really about liberal environmentalism. So he says, liberal environmentalism is so compatible with contemporary material and cultural currency that it implicitly supports the very things that it should be criticizing. Its technocratic, scientistic, and even economistic character gives credence to a society that measures the quality of life fundamentally in terms of economic growth, control over nature, and the maximization of sheer efficiency in everything we do. By working to show that environmental protection need not compromise these maxims, liberal environmentalism fails to raise deeper issues that more fundamentally engage the dynamics of environmental degradation. So um, my conclusions are really that settler Canadians need to take action required to address waste as settler colonialism. So. You're quiet now. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Sorry. you. <laughs> someone's, someone's not muted. Um, and, um, and this, by this, I do not mean we, you know, that we, we, we introduce a recycling scheme in a Hallowit. That is not what I'm talking about here. For me, that's this liberal environmentalism, yeah? The second thing we need to do is we need to exercise our rights and responsibilities as citizens, not as consumers. This idea that, you know, we'll just consume green and that takes care of our responsibility and that that is really uh, the limit of our rights, um, I think is something that we really need to call into question. So I really, um, I'm really fortunate to be asked to give quite a lot of public talks. Um, and I always talk to, you know, community groups, etc., about leveraging their power as citizens rather than as consumers. And we can talk about that later. So I just want to say that um, everything I'm saying is really part of a real team effort. And I really want to thank the communities of, of Pangerton and Hallowit, as well as my incredible grad students. Some, I think, are in this <laughs> unexpectedly, are, are might be listening to this I saw in the thing at the beginning. So um, Alex, Scott Lohe, Cassandra Kivenhoven, Jessica Matuzels, Diana Van Blyman, Jacob Bria, Hilary Predko, renders and Asia Roden. So um, if you're interested, all of what I've talked about is highly detailed uh, in, in these uh, recent books, if you're interested. So thank you very much for listening to me. And I hope I did not talk for too long. And I hope we have a lot of time for discussion. Why don't I stop my share? There we go. Thank you so much. That was uh, that was amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I saw a couple of uh, comments as you were talking uh, in the chat already. Uh, so 
Uh, I want to open the floor to our audience. If folks have questions, comments. Actually, before we get started, just to preempt something that I should have said and didn't, if anyone asked me about composting, composting is the exception to, re to recycling. <laughs> Mitigated, however, by how far trucks using non-renewable fossil fuels are taking your, the, the compost. So remember, Kingston compost is heading down the 401 using trucks, using non-renewable fossil fuels, and uh, using machinery that also uses non-renewable fossil fuels. So, um, but if you, it, you know, <laughs> composting isn't as bad. Thank you. Sorry, I'll just say that, <laughs> just say that quickly. Amazing, thank you. All right, uh, we have Victoria. Hi, um, thank you so much. That was really, really eye-opening. Um, and I feel like it really um, spoke on so many, like it really put into context, it all really makes sense. Um, and I was really wondering, as a student um, at Queens, what do you recommend that we can do to act as a, as a citizen rather than a consumer, um, even just in terms of like the, the schools recycling policies, um, like infrastructure on a bigger level, what, what is it that um, we students can do? Thank you, Victoria. That's a great question. So um, um, <laughs> there, there are quite a number of things. As an individual, um, you can reduce, you can refuse. Um, I think Mickey renders is here. She, she's one of my wonderful PhD students. And uh, pre-pandemic, she and some uh, um, her her team, which I think had Hillary Predko and it was maybe just Mickey and Hillary. Mickey, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, created a, 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 a like a clothing and other things, products um, exchange uh, in the I can't remember where it was, somewhere on campus. So that's a, if you, an individual thing that can happen. Um, the Queen's University has, uh, has a, a reuse and refurbishment program where you can uh, list things in your office or whatever that you don't want anymore and other people can come and claim it like a desk or a bookshelf or whatever. To the extent that you can refuse, reduce, reuse and refurbish, that's way better than recycling. The second thing you can do as an individual is find out where the, what's actually happening to recycling. Now this typically requ requires some sleuthing. So uh, rather than just trusting that the system is, oh, it's all being recycled, actually do the homework and find out. And students are super good at doing homework. So, but more than that, students can get together and work with, it used to be called the Sustainability Office. Um, and Lin Wen Ren is a fantastic, uh, you know, she's the head of it. And she and I have been working for years on Queen's uh, waste issues. And, um, and um, in fact, one of my undergrad uh, honor students, Olivia Ferguson is, is actually working with uh, Lin Wen now on Queen's waste issues. So um, definitely get into, I can't remember what they're called now. It's not sustainability office. It's called the, 
I don't know, energy in something office. I don't know, but get in touch with them. And um, of course, in, students have way less individual power than they have collective power. <laughs> um, so students can collectively do a lot more than they can do individually. And collectively, students can um, make it very clear to Queen's administration that they expect um, a more uh, effective uh, way of uh, reducing Queen's waste uh, footprint. Thank you so much. So would you recommend um, after having done said, after doing said sleuthing um, to then kind of like correspond using that group power and appeal to administration for like even just transparency in terms of like the recycling program? Well, I mean, as you know, um, Queens has a has its current contract is with um, Waste Management Incorporated, um, and um, uh, and so um, the sleuthing can be quite <laughs> quite challenging, uh, but yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, absolutely, uh, collectively um, letting Queen's administration know that this is a uh, this is an important concern for students um, can 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 uh, leverage action for sure. Excellent, uh, uh, Janet. Janet. Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, I attended um, a fundraising dinner for the Environmental Defense Fund, and the sort of theme of the, the dinner was waste and waste management. And one thing I learned there was that um, the plastic companies have a corporate agenda of actually increasing their production of plastic by about 40% in the next five to 10 years. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just was wondering... Um, can you speak to that a bit? Is there anything in other that other countries are doing to rein in the plastic com the plastic companies? Is there anything happening in Canada? What kind of legislative stuff is needed to sort of deal with this kind of problems? Um, Canada's doing nothing to rein it in. Um, if you look at Alberta's energy plan and its uh, way forward, um, it is it is slated to, it is trying everything it can to increase uh, its oil and gas production. When we say plastics, you know, we could just say oil and gas. Um, so no, in fact, the opposite. If we look globally, uh, countries, uh, the United States, um, China in particular, um, uh, numerous countries are actually um, setting up plastic product plastics because that's a it's a it's an umbrella term right plastics uh, production uh, um, factories mm -hmm. so um, yeah no we're 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 nowhere near looking at reduction of plastics worldwide we're looking at um, really all the data all the data points to the same thing, which is that we are looking at um, exponential increases in plastics production. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Zoli. Hi, I just um, wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on greenwashing and how you think that that sort of falls under the same category of uh, 
realistic amplification of waste management and sort of like company policies to quote unquote reduce um, waste, but also increase revenue for themselves. How do you mean, what do I think of greenwashing? I mean, it, it's clearly uh, highly successful. Um, it, it's, it's been around for a very long time. For instance, you know, that, you know, that, that, um, you know, keep America beautiful, that whole ironized Cody that I mentioned, that's where, um, Philip Morris and other, um, cigarette, you know, tobacco corporations got their inspiration. Um, and, you know, we all know the history of, of how the, the tobacco industries were highly effective in deflecting, um, deflecting attention. In fact, you know, one of their environmental, you know, campaigns was to make it appear as though the problem of the problem was um, cigarette butt littering. You probably don't remember that, but I remember that, like that that was the problem. You know, it's it's highly effective. I mean, it, you know, greenwashing works. Otherwise, they, otherwise, companies would not invest millions of dollars in greenwashing if it didn't work. It works extremely well. It works extremely well because we are so, because neoliberal capitalism structures a system such that um, individuals are held responsible for, oh, disproportionately responsible, which I call the problem of amplification for uh, environmental and other, and other, um, other societal problems. It focuses our attention away from all of the upstream causes and it and it has the bonus of in a country like Canada where we have a middle class, it it then sets up this there's a there's a real moral economy around greenwashing, right? Such that people can um as Shaz would say, they sort of, you know, they 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 buy their way to safety, right? So they can insulate themselves um, from polluted water, from all these things by just, you know, you know, and then and and then, you know, some privileged people who are privileged enough to have the income to be able to buy green products, which are more expensive, can have this sort of moral uh, moral authority over people who who. Are not privileged enough to be able to afford those things. I mean, as a, I'm, I don't mean to rant, but a perfect, a good example of this is the whole thing with food waste, and that the solution to food waste is that we we need more efficient ways of getting, you know, food that we that the privileged people are wasting and bring them to food depots. Effectively, what this what this actually means is that is that income insecure people are expected to not only eat other people's garbage but they are expected to be thankful for this it i mean listen to elaine powers read elaine powers work you know it it, it this is how neoliberal capitalism responds to income insecurity not by a basic basic income but by giving privileged people this sense of moral, uh, of, of, of heightened morality by giving their garbage to poor people, income insecure people, who are then supposed to say, oh, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for this. Yeah, thank you. I, 
Thank um, you so much. Oh, sorry, Zoli. I also just was uh, wanting to ask, where can we find the, the recording of this um, seminar? Uh, it will be posted on CFRC. I mean, you can find the podcast on any podcast uh, platform, Spotify, iTunes, etc. But we are housed at CFRC.ca. Okay. And thank you, CFRC. You rock. Um, awesome. Uh, Kesha. Hi, Mara. Thank you so much for that presentation. I, I'm not sure if you mentioned it at all, but I would love to hear your thoughts on zero waste initiatives that are sort of increasingly taking up by many levels of government and how it's conflated with recycling and the circular economy within that broader umbrella of green capitalism. Okay, so <laughs> thank you for that question. Um, and I actually have, I have material uh, in this, the public sociology of waste on zero waste. And one of my students, Asia, who I think is in this thing, she's actually part of her uh, master's thesis is, is looking at this. So zero waste is impossible. <laughs> um, it, 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 that, you know, even if we look at Inuit communities pre-colonization, um, you know, Inuit families were not zero waste. Um, the way zero waste works in capitalist societies like Canada, the United States, European countries, etc., um, it is de very definitely part of liberal environmentalism and very definitely part of uh, neoliberal, you know, capitalist society such that, um, People who are privileged enough can devote uh, the, the money required and the time and energy resources. Uh, because, for instance, um, what's her name? Uh, Asia, you can remind me, B. Johnson. She's one of the gurus of zero waste, and she flies around the planet giving talks about how people should reduce their, you know, their waste. And she has a website where you where she, you know, where you can and you know she platforms best like small suitcase to take on flights and all of all of the products are linked to amazon uh one of the major polluters uh and wasters on this planet and you know like her little suitcase you can buy for 499 us dollars and so what you get is highly privileged people who can again buy themselves to this moral economy of um well, look, look, you know, that they can sort of assuage their own feelings of responsibility. A lot of zero waste, um, it, it's a business, right? A lot of zero waste initiatives, it's, it's a business. And so it's profit making. As well, a lot of zero waste, like B. Johnson's site, a lot of zero waste. And I've, I mean, I, 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 you know, I've been contacted by lots of zero waste. It relies very heavily on recycling with an entirely unscrutinized assumption that recycling indefinitely keeps products in circulation without creating waste indefinitely and it's that it's really good for the environment. So I it's a phenomenon um zero waste to me i mean to the extent that to the extent that 
people are trying to reduce their waste by not consuming, by reducing, reusing, by setting up swaps in their communities. All these things are good things. It's not going to save the planet. You know, me riding a bicycle is not going to save the planet, right? If I ditch my car, someone who's got a crappier car is going to take up my space <laughs> on the road. So it's not going to save the planet. My worry with things like zero waste are that if that's where people stop, if people recycle or people, you know, take care of themselves and then they think, well, I'm doing my part for the planet and everyone else now needs to do their part, then we're screwed. <laughs> we're really screwed. That's not our limit. Our limit is not our, our behavior as individuals. It's our behavior as in collectivities that work for a public good, not for our own good. We have to think of ourselves as citizens who are who have responsibilities to, um, you know, make this system a, an actually viable and socially just system. Mm, thank you so much. Yeah, so that's what I think is zero waste. <laughs> thank you. Uh, Rafi. Hi, Mara. Thank you so much for this uh, this great talk. So I'm I'm also a waste researcher, and I'm really taken by um, how simple and persuasive the the take home uh, when it comes to waste. You know, be a citizen, not a not a consumer, is. And uh, it's something I often say in my own teaching and research in in less words. So 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 thanks for that. Um, I I guess the the problem I have is that. I, there's very few extant examples um, that I find political inspiration in, you know, in this turn, right, from consumer to citizen. I, I often say we need to socialize the means of disposal, right, or municipalize the means of disposal. Um, so I'd love to hear more. You, you, you signal that there's some work that you have in your lab going on there. And I'd love to hear more about that, uh, remunicipalizing um, uh, waste and recycling in, in Canada. The, the other thing is that when we move to the citizen framework, then we can also, at least in, in maybe liberal democracies like uh, like Canada, uh, uh, think about a rights-based framework. And so did you encounter in, in Canada in your research this, this movement, um, right to repair? So I, I know there's lots of that in the US and Europe specifically, but um, is there a Canadian right to repair movement uh, that, that you find inspiration in? Thanks. Yeah, well, I'm very excited to have a fellow waste studies researcher. <laughs> um, so, uh, no, that's that's great because there's so few of us in Canada, aren't there? You know, so um, yay. <laughs> um, okay, so remunicipalization. Um, um, I I I do. I mean, there there are very few examples, as as I'm sure you know. There's very few examples of this. I think there are, um, and it it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be great. I mean, Zuza Gill's, you know, sort of pathbreaking early book on, uh, you know, the the move from you know sort of state run to to completely, you know, profit-driven capitalist waste management in Hungary, you know, as a case in point, right? Remunicipalizing doesn't guarantee that it's going to, that it's, <laughs> that it's going to be better. Um, I think it's definitely worth exploring and there are very few examples of that. Um, certainly, 
in the West. Um, I think that there are there are other things though. For instance, extended producer responsibility. Germany has this. I can't pronounce how it's called, but you know, you probably know already that Germany has probably the most extensive ex extended producer responsibility regulations in the world right now, where they are making the companies that produce packaging, um, etc to assume 100% responsibility for that recycling. And now it's early days, it's only been in, in force since I think 2019, but from what the data shows so far, um, it is inciting companies to design things with a lot less packaging once they have to, you know, and, and they're not allowed, they're, they're, they're legally not allowed to, by regulation, increase the, the, the um, the price of the products to just sort of once again externalize the cost of uh, of recycling. So I think we I think I think there there are other things we can do besides remunicipalize to um, shift um, responsibility and shift accountability onto the players who are um, the stakeholders who are producing. Um, who are who are producing this uh you know all of this all of this waste and a lot of the tox the toxic forms of waste as well um in terms of right to repair i know toronto has some of these right to repair um programs um again you know i completely agree canada is definitely not at the forefront <laughs> those uh, initiatives and from what I've seen in countries such as uh, France, um, Spain, etc., they're quite small, you know, they're quite sort of small grassroots initiatives. And these, you know, these can be very good because they can sort of, as it were, and I'm old enough to say this, raise people's consciousness. I don't know if people say this now, but in the old days, we used to, you know, as feminists, etc., we used to raise consciousness um, about, you know, the real the real sources of of um you know move us to more upstream discussions of what's actually going on um for me the major you know the one of the major things is this reframing that's required we need to reframe the problem away from a better you know like techno fixes and definitely countries in europe are heading strongly to this you know let's remember france has petitioned the EU to redefine nuclear <laughs> nuclear centers as green energy. That includes all of that nuclear waste that only Finland is claiming to have a permanent repository, which they haven't actually built yet. Remember, all nuclear waste is in temporary repositories because no country knows what to do with it <laughs> and yet we're moving to a situation in which in which nuclear waste may well be globally redefined as green <laughs> i mean I, I, you know but that should all cause us a little sorry uh, sorry rafi i'm kind of moving off point here but i'm i but um I really, really think that, uh, you know, the, the first giant step is to reframe. And if we're reframing in right to repair shops and all of this kind of thing, then that's great. Thanks. Yeah, that, that's the only thing I find inspiring about the right to repair movement is that it 
it, there, there's some agency for in the individual that's a, that's a that's more than just um, moral. It's a responsibility to the to the material, but it also demands the producer to make something that's repairable. Like it, it interrupts planned obsolescence, kind of at the source and yeah. at the consumer citizen end. So it's a yeah. Yeah. So no, those. That's an excellent point. Yeah, absolutely. And that that in itself requires like a major a major shift back to you know sort of nineteen fifty when washing machines were made to last, cars were made to last, you know. Absolutely. Um I'm not seeing any other hands. Carolyn Carolyn. Yes, here we go. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Myra. It was a wonderful talk. And yeah, I think like there were lots of um different people in the audience here who took took a lot of different uh things from what you said and there were a couple of points that made me laugh like when you're speaking about washing out the peanut butter jar like I I do that half the time and as I'm washing it out I'm like I am wasting so much water trying to get this damn peanut butter out of the peanut butter jar like what is the point of what I'm doing so sometimes I just toss it in the garbage so I mean, thank you for for bringing up some of those those um, individual behaviors that we feel morally we're supposed to engage in but um yeah have all these knock on kinds of effects. And, and so thank you for that. Um, the other thing that made me laugh was when you were talking about uh, recycling and how we're paying for recycling and yet they're also making money on top of it. And it made me think of like academic publishing and open access academic publishing and how we have to pay more for these big publishers to make money off of our work. So there were just, there's a lot that you brought up for me here. Um, but I think I actually just wanted to wanted to draw on that last point you were speaking about. I know there is nuclear waste in Canada, but I actually don't know much about it. And so I'm wondering, like, where is the nuclear waste? What are the politics around that? Um, is that part of what you've looked at in your own work? So that's one question. And then I'm also just I'm also interested in your work with Inuit and what um, what your relationships there look like. Um, what like what what is the research focus in Nunavut and what are people in Iqaluit interested in thinking about with respect to waste? Um, well, um, I uh, so in uh, in the in the first instance, I. Um, I know very little about nuclear waste issues in Canada. I am super fortunate to uh, to work with Peter Van Wyk, who's a communications scholar at Concordia University, who has been studying uh, uh, nuclear waste issues in Canada and beyond uh, over the span of his entire career. So um, I always defer to Peter Van Wyk's amazing work on this topic. Um, in fact, he and I are actually currently in the process of putting in another grant application for to study nuclear waste issues. Um, I'm sure some of you have have um, are familiar with these sort of these small, I can't remember what they're called, like small modular um, reactors that are all the rage at the minute you know of and that this will sort of this will solve our energy problems as we're moving away from fossil fuels you know there's no we you know there's not enough wind power there's not enough water power to 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 supply the our energy needs so there is a there is definitely in canada but globally a sort of a return to nuclear power centers, France, who's got the most nuclear power centers uh, of any country. 
um, it's it's uh, has just green lighted I don't know six more or something like that Canada has green lighted uh, more um, and so there's this real um, I mean already I think around half of Ontario's energy is nuclear um, so it's not like we ever really moved away from it um, and we have such a globally we have such a um, such a secure um, source of uh, uranium. Um, you know, the other countries are uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Russia. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not gonna, you know, so we're seen as a, as a really uh, good, we have, so we have major, major um, um, contracts with other countries like France, where we're a big supplier to France of uranium, et cetera. Um, so I, I know very little about it. I know that we have no permanent repositories. I know that um, two communities, the Atomic Energy Association is attempt, and the federal government is attempting to persuade two communities to accept nuclear waste repositories uh, uh, near their communities. Um, more than that, I don't know. Um, I'd like to find out more. I'd like to part of my research, I'd like to move in that direction, but I'm really at the beginning of that. But Peter Van Wyk, he's really the Canadian expert on it. So, and the other, oh, okay, so none of it. Well, I would defer to Mickey Renders, who's here. Um, she, as I said, is one of my amazing PhD students, and she is, um, there, there was the post, the pre-pandemic uh, work that I did in Nunavut, and all the plans that I made, and I spent, I don't know, over a decade building relationships with um, uh, people in Pangerton, Nunavut, and uh, pre-pandemic, I uh, spent quite a lot of time with the mayor. I presented at the Hamlet um, office and had council approval to. Um, to uh, look into a reuse refurbishment program there that one of my master's students, Hillary Predko, was all set to literally Mickey and Hillary had their flights booked and we all know that story, right? So Hillary had to pivot to an entirely different topic. Um, and so um, Mickey has done a like Herculean effort in maintaining through Facebook and other platforms relationships with Inuit um, artists in Pangerton to uh, look at, to do a, a, a big research creation project on uh, on waste issues uh, in Pangerton as part of this social justice um, approach through research creation. So I would really need to defer to Mickey because she's she's really whatever I had established has all completely been wrecked by the pandemic and not being able to go up there, not having regular communication, uh, you know, with, with my collaborators up there, et cetera, um, has really just, and, and my funding is running out and all of that. So I'm going to have to go through the whole process again. And of course, my projects are definitely not their priorities. They have COVID cases, they have, you know, lots of other crises happening. So pre-pandemic, my aspirations were much different than my ongoing pandemic aspirations. So I'll have to, I'll have to sort of see, but um, 
I really, again, it's really Mickey that um, it's her PhD project that's really um, at the forefront of, of that, that part of my research program. Um, so <laughs> as I fizzle out with my, with my, with my sentence, because I'm so depressed and disheartened about that, one of the many consequences of the pandemic. Fair, fair. I think that's the mood for <laughs> a number of us. Um, Miki, do you want to say anything or, you know? Um, I'm not really, whoops. I, I don't know, you can hear me now. Um, I'm not really sure what, uh, how to answer that. I can start my video, there we go. Um, yeah, really, you know, I think there's right now, my comments wouldn't really mean very much because in dealing with uh, my contacts up there, it's a very human relationship. Like it's become, uh, you know, like I knit babies, baby stuff for someone who had a baby and I hear about, you know, all the, uh, the crises, uh, there's been so much, um, really social, um, consequences to the pandemic. Um, I think the last time I looked, there were 23 cases in Pangertung of, and they're also dealing with an outbreak of tuberculosis. They had a death, uh, during some snowmobile races last week. It's, a community of, of 1600. And yet in my work, we are the work I'm working with the Inuit or other Inuit artists are it's all framing these as wastes too and connecting these back to settler colonization. And they're, they're very, very astute. Like they, this is not me trying to tell them about waste. This is really incredibly, um, I, I just, I'm in such admiration of how, how uh, clearly they see these issues and how their, their tenacity at reframing them back to, to colonization and, and all that and, and resilience in their um, culture and stuff like that as being an evolving and way forward. So anyway, I don't know if you have a specific question. It's I think I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the research creation activity, but I know we're running out of time here. So, um, but just like, I can really, if we have two seconds, I can just tell you that, um, basically Myra and I had gone up there. Uh, I stayed back and I met a bunch of artists and they, they were keen on and mainly women artists who were keen on, on responding to the waste issues and uh, they've maintained this. Um, there is one guy, he's a photographer who's worked with some of the youth, taking them out on outings and teaching them photography. We did, we were able to provide them with cameras. Um, and so they've kind of, be, in a way, this has been kind of a little bit of a good thing that I haven't been there to influence. So they are running with this project. And, you know, and then, you know, there's, sending me work and stuff like it's all just been happening um and uh and then i am doing work in response to sort of my position as a researcher and looking at how you know i cannot escape 
the fact that I am an outsider to the community. I'm a white settler with all these privileges, including whatever I do, uh, you know, through a PhD, which just further kind of inculcates the uh, the issues around uh, colonization. And so, um, I you know, I'm I'm really looking. I'm in the middle right now of my comps, and I'm really looking forward to making art. My my I am a visual artist. That's what I've done all my life. So for me, you know, I, I'm just let me out or I've got my studio cleaned and ready to go. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of like a writing, reflecting, making art, reflecting, writing, reflecting, making art. And it's sort of a, you know, process like that. And then an exhibition. And I, I seem to have uh, places that are interested in, in exhibiting the work of, of and, bodies and, of work. And pre-pandemic, Mickey and I had organized <laughs> for this exhibition. I had a sponsor in France and uh, Mickey and Inuit artists and all the art was going to be paid to fly over to France and be in a big Anthropocene exhibition at the Musée de Confluence. I literally, didn't I, Mickey, literally had just sort of come back from organizing all that in France, pandemic. So we are, honestly, Mickey has done a Herculean job of pivoting once, pivoting twice, pivoting three times, pivoting four, like how many flights have been booked, canceled, yeah. redone? Uh, like it's just been an, uh, 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 the fact that she's got like any context, the fact that she's done all of this is like just, I uh, for me, it's like perseverance, you know? <laughs> So we'll see. We'll see what we'll see what comes out of it. <laughs> amazing, amazing folks. And it's so nice to see you again. Uh, <laughs> nice to um, see you. So I'm thinking wrapping up. Uh, you know, we are, we we lost uh, a few people. I know. You know, uh, it is also a time for meetings, etc. Um, and but you know, checking the chat, I see Nikki uh, Koludas uh, shared. Uh, uh, a survey, um, you know, uh, you know, hospitality services at Queens is looking on community input on a new cold beverage provider to replace Coca-Cola. Sounds amazing. You know, if folks are interested, you know, they can uh, check it out for cold beverage consultative group uh, uh, at Queens. And I'm going to say my age again. In my day, a cold beverage would have been water. Know. You know, we didn't need to have 35 different choices of, again, let's, I, I'm not against the survey at all. Upstream, though, it's interesting that this is where we are, like, which one should we get? You know, it reminds me of when I, when my, you know, my children were little, and I'd say, do you want to wear the blue sweater or the red sweater? You know, like they're going to wear a sweater, but they I'm making them think that they have a choice. <laughs> I don't care whether they wear the blue or the red. because So the fact is, is the Queens has already decided that they're going to contract with another bottling company, at least one, right? So again, this is a good example of downstream upstream where we are being asked to participate as consumers. I, I and, totally agree. Yeah. Sorry. And... and choice so again i don't know the details of it i haven't looked at this survey but as a waste studies person this is how and based on what i've said today we want to be cautious about these things that 
we don't think, oh yeah, look, I, this is how I can part meaningfully participate, is that I can, you know, I can say, well, we should go with Pepsi this time. I mean, I don't know if those two companies are separate, but, or, you, you know, whatever, right? Like, we, we need cold beverage contracts. We do that. We, we need more than what we need more than safe drinking water. This is a requirement of faculty, staff and students. Like we have to have that. We there's no possibility we can refuse that. We can just say we don't need that. We're going to reduce what we need is water to stay alive and to think and to do all these things. And we have at the cost of millions and millions of dollars, all of these uh, water fountains. That was Principal Wolf's one of his big things and they're installed across campus. So why do we need, you know, this is an this would be an excellent example for students to get together as well as faculty and staff and say, we don't want another contract. We don't want a contract with plastic or metal. Remember everyone carrying around these metal water containers? Remember that's mining, right? That's resource extraction, that's mining. That's the major producer of waste, toxic waste in Canada. So carrying around a metal container and thinking that's morally superior to carrying around a plastic container, mm, it's both extraction. So again, that's a good example of, you know, we're being presented as though we can make this really great moral choice and we can participate in the life of our university as consumers. Why don't we participate as citizens and refuse it? Right, I, I absolutely agree. I'm, I'm hoping one of the options is neither. I don't want to bear its weather today, uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, hopefully, we'll see. I don't also know, know the details. Um, and also, you know, again, uh, reminding folks, we're going to hopefully continue this conversation. And please, Myra, you know, uh, hope to see you again next week uh, with Rafi, uh, with Kesha, and also uh, Jossie, I guess. Hopefully, I'm not mispronouncing uh, their names. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Myra. This was amazing. This was definitely an amazing session of consciousness raising. Uh, so well, thank you very much for, much for inviting me. Yeah, no, thank you very much for inviting me. And, and, and as an added bonus, wasn't it great that Mickey was here too? So thank you, Mickey, for sorry that I called on you like that. But I just, <laughs> but I just wanted you to be able to, to speak to your amazing project. So um, thank you, everyone. I really, really appreciate your time and, and your questions. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.